raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Beyonce, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson. Brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Easiest way to say it. It is the eve of Carb Day Eve. Which means the civic celebration is about to begin. Good evening to you. My name is Jake Query. Mike Thompson here as well. Sam Fritz, Eddie Garrison helping out behind the scenes for Beyond the Bricks here. Our look at the Indianapolis 500, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and the names, the faces, the figures, the stories, the personalities, the legends, maybe even some of the rumors that make it the greatest spectacle in racing. On this Wednesday, and Mike, kind of fitting, and I'll tell you why in a second that we are starting off with the year tonight that we are going to shed light on because of the fact that tomorrow is, I know this is, I mentioned that this is the eve of Carb Day Eve. This is actually, to some extent, the eve of a holiday weekend for you because I know, partially because I've seen your 9,600 square foot home, of which 9,200 square feet is memorabilia, um, I know what this means to you for the memorabilia show, which I know people are looking forward to, that begins tomorrow and then runs Friday and Saturday in Plainfield at the Embassy Suites Event Center. And a lot of cool stuff that's going to be available there. And for just $7 or $15 for the weekend, Mike, it's worth twice the price. No question about it. It's it's my favorite thing of the whole week is the memorabilia show. I love the memorabilia show. Um, and it's bigger and better than ever. I mean, now it's three days. Uh, so one of the things that... I think went into that decision is because, you know, people come into town at different times and they've got different things going on. And, you know, obviously there's carb day and, you know, different things. And so that this gives you an opportunity, three different chances to make sure it fits into your schedule. So I think the organizers, uh, uh, Craig Huffman and Kendall Wildman have done a great job coming up with this plan to have three days and they've got driver guests there to sign autographs all three days. So there's something for everybody. I mean, and what's nice about this is, you know, you can come to the to the show and meet some of these legends like Tom Sneva and Johnny Rutherford, you know, Tom Bigelow, all these different people. It's and the autographs are free. It's not like some of the, you know, baseball card shows where you're paying 50, 60 bucks to get one signature. Uh, if you come out tomorrow to meet Johnny Rutherford, you're going to get Johnny Rutherford's signature and it's a it's a free deal. So that's just the autograph portion of it. And as you said, I mean, 150, 160 tables of incredible merchandise, uh, you know, collectibles. Uh, dating all the way back to you know 1909 so it's it's really my favorite thing of all of race week now of the things that mike before we get to tonight's topic of the things that are the most coveted and i one person's i've always felt like when it comes to memorabilia 
there's an over it's overrated to determine the value of something because something is worth what it is to the person who wants it or who owns it right i mean one person's trash oh, is yeah. another person's treasure vice versa but um what is the one thing that you kind of find that people most often are seeking out that is somewhat available but also uh coveted and and fun to go through at the memorabilia show um, I get asked a lot about tickets and programs from the early days. I mean, tickets uh, and programs from, you know, the post-war, the Holman era, beginning after, you know, World War II, are fairly still, you know, pretty common. But the earlier tickets, you know, when you're talking programs and tickets from the 20s, uh, you know, that gets a little tougher. So I, I get asked a lot about that. Um, you know, obviously, you know, because of my connection, you know, as having one of the top you know, Indianapolis 500 autograph collections in the world. A lot of people come to me, you know, regarding autographs. So that's really mainly, you know, my wheelhouse is autographs and, and things of that nature. So, uh, but we, that's, what's neat about the show is there are guys there who are ticket guy. There's the guy there who's got the panoramic photos. There's the guy there who's got programs and badges and stuff. So if you're depending on what group you're in, and I think you just made a great point. There's some, there really is something for everybody and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go there and think, oh, well, I don't have $1,000 to drop on something. I mean, I bought something today. Uh, I'm happy to meet with one of the vendors early, and I bought something today that's so cool. I want to put up a picture of it because it's it's actually a little award that the Speedway Radio Network would send out, apparently, which I've never seen one of these until today. Apparently, they would send these little uh, thank you certificates to stations that carried the broadcast. And so I picked this up today. And it's not like a high dollar item, but it's just something really cool. And, you know, I collect radio network, Speedway Radio Network stuff. So I was like, oh, I'll take that, you know. And it's one of those things that it's not monetary, super valuable. But to me, it was like, I, I couldn't believe it. I can't wait to have it in my collection. Well, let's get to the reason I asked that also is, and by the way, that's very cool about the radio network for certain. Um, badges are something that I know that people covet. And especially from the older years, but off the top of your head, Mike, and there's a reason I'm getting to it, um, take me through kind of the history or the years of the different badges at IMS. So really the, the badges, um, they, they were really started in the thirties. That's where the badges really became a big deal since 1938 was the first year that the badges became, you know, part of the the situation so metal metal badges before that there were like different kind of credentials paper credentials sometimes called celluloids um, and other different forms of paper credentials so there were paper credentials up until 1938 and then since then there's always been um, a badge and so the the early really early badges 38 there's some of them are called the big four 38 39 40 41 prior to the you know, World War II. Those are what's called the big four, and they're really the most valuable of the pit badges. But then after, of course, uh, after World War II, it ended up there was going to be bronze. There were bronze badges developed and silver badges. So then you had two different kind of badges to collect if you're interested in collecting badges. So, uh, you know, and what's nice about it is there's price points for everybody. The bronze badges are cheaper than the silvers. So if you're just interested in having badges, you can go the bronze badge route and try to put together. I, I know a lot of people who have put together really neat displays, you know, uh, with shadow boxes and things like that of the badges. And, you know, they just wanted the bronze badges for that. Or you could go with the silvers for that, too. I mean, it's just something really cool to collect. 
So the reason I ask is because, in fact, you are correct. The bronze and silver badges, as you just said, I mean, was... 1947 was the first year that there was actually a color designation for the areas that the badges would allow you on the grounds of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The 31st running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, as a matter of fact. The race was won by Maury Rose. Bill Holland had finished second. They were teammates in that year. And the reality is this, Mike. You could very easily simply look at the box score of the 1947 Indy 500, the 31st running of the great race, and simply say to yourself, oh, looks like two teammates probably were out there. They had better cars than everybody else. The Blue Crown spark plug team must have been completely dialed in and everything was A-OK. But in reality, there was a little bit of confusion, Mike, between those two. Well, it was a really interesting situation developed because Bill Holland was you know, a rookie at the time, and he was having a pretty dominant day. And Bill Holland was, you know, he's having this great day, and all of a sudden he gets this signboard that says, uh, you know, easy right near the end of the race. And so he starts, you know, he, he obeys the signboard. He takes it easy. But the problem was the the second-place driver at the time, Maury Rose, he decided not to follow that. And he went around Bill Holland, passed him, for the lead and it became a really hugely controversial situation what happened was you know Lou Moore the car owner he didn't want to take a chance on the two you know running into each other as we've seen occasionally teammates crash and he didn't he didn't want to take a chance on that because in his mind one of the two cars winning that he wins right so he didn't want the situation where there was any kind of you know an accident happens and all of a sudden he his team doesn't win the race so uh, Holland, you know, let Maury Rose go by, kind of waved to him like, hey, you know, but he didn't know that he was being passed for the lead at the time. There were no two-way radios or anything like that telling him, hey, that's now the leader. You got to go chase him down, that type of thing. So it became a pretty huge controversy. And what's interesting about the clip we're going to play is Holland pretty, you know, he, he, Holland, a lot of people thought Holland got thrown under the bus by Lou Moore. And he was kind of salty about it and a little bit upset, but he also knew that that was one of the best cars out there. And so he stayed with Lou Moore, finished second again the next year, then finally won uh, the next year after that. But you could tell he's a little salty in this interview when he gives a kind of a you know, play-by-play description of what actually happened in the famous easy situation. The easy situation, as a matter of fact, came with eight laps to go after Holland had led and dominated the race for the most part. As a matter of fact, he led from laps 86 to 192. The 1947 Indianapolis 500, Bill Holland would ultimately pass away in 1984, but in the ensuing years after 1947, very recently after, as a matter of fact, he talked about the 31st Indianapolis 500. With the sports spotlight focused again on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, where the 32nd annual 500-mile race will be run on May 31st, there's still a lot of talk about the unusual finish a year ago. With only a few laps to go, Bill Holland appeared to be a certain winner. Then Maury Rose, his teammate, passed him without being challenged and went on to score an unexpected victory. Now, there have been many versions as to what actually happened. Today, however, Bill Holland is going to give us his own account of that 1947 finish. What happened, Bill? If you want the whole story in a few words, Stan, my pit crew put OK on the board when Rose passed me instead of showing me second place. I didn't know I was giving up the lead with only eight laps to go. A lot of race fans left the speedway, though, wondering why you slowed down near the finish with victory apparently in the bag. Was there anything wrong with your car? 
No, Stan, my car was running perfectly. I was out in front with 20 laps to go, and I thought I had a lead of more than a full lap on every other car in the race. But Rose actually was running on the same lap, only 32 seconds behind me. Each of us was more than three laps ahead of all other rivals. However, Moore, owner of both cars, signaled for us to take it easy in order to lessen the chance of mechanical failure which might prevent us from finishing. Well, I don't suppose anyone could have overtaken you or Rose if they had cut your speed down to 108 or 110 miles an hour, could they, Bill? That's right, Stan, and we actually did slow down to about 112 miles an hour, but it began to get monotonous at that speed, and when Horn passed me, I followed him for a few laps to make the time pass more quickly. But Ted was still three laps behind, and Moore got excited and slowed me down again because he was afraid I might develop motor trouble so near the end of the race. Well, several weeks after the race, Bill, I heard about a similar situation which developed during the 1930 event. Harry Hartz had two fast cars which were running in first and second position. Billy Arnold and Fred Frame were the drivers, and they were running much faster than necessary in order to stay ahead of the pack. Like Moore did last year, Hartz instructed both drivers to ease up on the throttle. Frame followed instructions immediately, but Arnold kept right on going at top speed. Hartz did everything but stand on his head in the middle of the track in an effort to get Arnold to reduce speed without success. And a few laps later, Arnold's car sailed clear over the retaining wall in one of the turns and was out of the race. Frame, driving only as fast as necessary to stay in first place, won the event. And Moore apparently had that incident in mind when he ordered both you and Maury to take it easy near the finish. That probably is right, Stan, but to go on with my story, Moore was very empathetic in a with the easy signal after I had taken out in chase of Horn, and I immediately reduced speed again. Mari Rose pulled up alongside of me, and I waved him on ahead because I thought I still had a full lap on him. Now, right there is where I kicked the race away because I didn't know my exact position after circling the big two-and-a-half-mile track more than 190 times. I always depended on a friend of mine in the pits to keep me posted in all of my other races, but he wasn't able to come to Indianapolis, and no one let me know I had dropped back to second spot. If I had realized Rose was taking the lead, I never would have let him by. Well, when did you finally realize your mistake, Bill? It wasn't until I finished my second extra lap and stopped at the pits that I realized something was wrong. I heard the announcement on the loudspeaker, Bill Holland, second place winner. Well, that certainly was a tough break, Bill. Yes, Stan. Thinking I had won the race was the biggest thrill of my life, and my biggest disappointment was the realization I had not. But it's all water over the dam now. This is another year. And if my car runs as well this time as it did a year ago, I certainly expect to be in victory lane uh, on the afternoon of May 31st. Well, that's Bill Holland's own story of what happened at the finish of the 500-mile Indianapolis race last year, fans. I'm certain it sounds as if you've got a victory coming up to you, Bill, and I'm sure you're going to have the best wishes of every fan who remembers that race a year ago, and I'm sure they'll be rooting for you on May 31st this year in the Indianapolis 500-mile Speedway Classic. You know, Mike, one of the interesting things about that race in 1947 is that it featured in it one of the great careers that I think gets lost in IMS lore, perhaps sometimes statistically speaking, of drivers that were just absolutely dominant without winning the 500-mile race. Ted Horn raced 10 times. He was fatally injured in 1948 in Illinois in a racing accident. But 
in his last nine Indianapolis 500s, his finishing place, second, third, fourth, 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 third, 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 fourth, including a third in 1947. And Mike, one of the things that you have masterfully done, as always, is come up with more fabulous and rare audio. That includes, we're going to hear from that man I'm talking about, Ted Horn. Take us through what our next clip is. Well, what's cool about it is first, I want to make one quick comment about the previous audio we heard. My favorite part about that whole thing is poor Bill Hollins relating this story about how he lost the Indianapolis 500. And that guy's like, oh, yeah, that's a tough break, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for sharing. Sorry you just lost the biggest race in the world. That's a a tough break, Bill. You know, sorry about that. So that's my favorite part of that previous clip. But uh, you're right. Ted Horn, um, you know, he had an incredible record. You know, sometimes it's interesting when people talk about Horn because he had all these fourths. You know, he had fourth, you know, four different times he was fourth. And, you know, he had four thirds. Um, they talk about the fact that he, you know, he's one of the on the list of the, the greats who never won. You know, who's the greatest, quote unquote, that didn't that never won the 500. Um, it's interesting, though, that Ted Horn, for all of those great finishes, he only led 94 laps in his entire career. And 74 of them came in his last 500. So he really wasn't up there in the lead hardly at all until his final race in 1948, and then he led 74 laps. So it's just interesting to me that he had all those great finishes, but through his, you know, through the first few years of his career, racking up those thirds and fourths every year, he had only led 20 laps up until 1948, and then he led 74 in his last lap, in his last race. But uh, this is one of those, uh, you know press junket uh, audios that Jake likes so much. I do. To to hear. Um, So this is uh, Wilbur Shaw and Tommy Milton and Ted Horn. Now, the one thing I will say about this clip is I wish they would have given uh, Ted Horn a little bit more opportunity to talk because it would have been nice to hear from him a little bit more. But uh, it's a really cool clip. Who's going to win the 500-mile race? That question is being asked with increasing frequency each day as mechanics and drivers rush preparation for the 32nd Annual Classic at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, May 31st. Today, you can hear some expert opinions on the subject because such outstanding racing figures as Wilbur Shaw, Tommy Milton, and Ted Horn are gathered around the microphone to answer our questions. 25 years ago, Milton became the first two-time winner of the big event. Shaw, who's now president and general manager of the Speedway, has three victories to his credit, and Horn is the AAA champion, who's finished fourth or better in each of the last eight 500-mile classics, although never a winner. Now, what's your guess this year, Wilbur? Will a veteran or some comparatively unknown newcomer lead the way home? That's a tough one to answer, Stan, because there are so many promising youngsters in the field this year. Any one of half a dozen of these boys might blaze a brilliant path right into victory lane, as Frank Lockhart did in 26 and as Bill Holland almost did last year. But I don't know of any competitive event in which a greater value is placed on experience than at Indianapolis, and my vote would go to the veterans. Well, I see Ted and Tommy are both nodding their heads in agreement, so the vote apparently is unanimous. But before talking about the chances of the veterans, Wilbur, tell us about uh, some of the best of the newcomers. There are three, Stan, who are outstanding in my opinion. There are Walt Ader of Bernardsville, New Jersey, and two Californians, Mac Hellings and Jack McGrath. But I believe that Hellings is the most dangerous threat of the group for two reasons. In the first place, he has built up an exceptionally fine driving record on the Pacific Coast. And in the second place, he has been chosen by Lou Moore to drive the new car which Moore built 
since placing his two Blue Crown spark plug specials in first and second place last year. Lou Moore is a very fine judge of driving ability. You've seen all the good drivers the last 25 years in action, Tommy. Which of them has the best chance of winning this year? I don't feel qualified to single out one individual, Stan, and say that he is the likely winner because there are five or six with almost equal chances. Ted here certainly is due for a victory after finishing fourth or better in each of the last eight races. He'll be driving Cotton Henning's Maserati, which is one of the fastest cars in the race. Rose and Holland ran away from the field last year and unquestionably could have gone much faster if they had been crowded. Cliff Brazier did a remarkable job last year, and the car will be much easier to handle this year because the trouble with the front wheels has been entirely eliminated as a result of experiments conducted at the Speedway early last fall. Another veteran who should be among the leaders all the way is Chet Miller, who didn't get into last year's race. He will be Brazier's running mate in the Novi Groove Piston Specials. Rex Mays, of course, is always a strong contender. And I'm inclined to believe that the winner will come from among these six. Well, we haven't heard from you yet, Ted. Uh, have any of the favorites been overlooked? Well, I can think of several other good drivers I'm going to keep an eye on, Stan, especially Jimmy Jackson. We've been playing tag with each other in each of the last two races. Two years ago, he finished second, and I finished third. Last year, I finished third again, he finished fifth. This year, Jimmy has the best car he's ever driven, the Howard Keck Special which is almost identical to the Blue Crown spark plug specials of last year, and he's going to be hard to beat. Are there any outstanding veterans in this year's race, Wilbur? Oh, yes, Stan. There are several. Right offhand, I can think of at least four who merit special attention. Russ Snowberger, who has finished among the top ten on five different occasions, has a very fast Maserati, which is almost identical to the one Ted Horn will drive. Cotton Henning is preparing a mighty fast car for George Conner. Two other drivers who know how to get around the speedway in exceptionally good time are Tony Bettenhausen and Duke Nalen. And several of the other boys who haven't had an opportunity to drive really good cars in former races probably are more dangerous than their records might indicate. Don't you think so, Tommy? Yes, I do, Wilbur. Every experienced driver who has been assigned to one of the 15 new cars in this year's race must be regarded as a distinct threat. And that's the general picture of the forthcoming 500-mile automobile race at Indianapolis on May 31st, as viewed by Ted Horn, Tommy Milton, and Wilbur Shaw. Allings, McGrath, and Ader among the newcomers, Rose, Holland, Horn, Berger, Miller, Mays, Jackson, Snowberger, Bettenhausen, Nalen, and Connor among the veterans, with a chance that some outsider in one of the new cars may duplicate the unexpected victories of Frank Lockhart or George Souter approximately 20 years ago. You know, Mike, I think we should continue doing the show exactly. And by the way, uh, Russ Snowberger did not make the show in 1948. But I think we should continue doing the show just like that. Absolutely, Mike. Thank you. Yes, I would yes, agree with yes, your comments. Jake. <laughs> yes, Jake, that, that boy is really good. <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's a couple of other boys that were awfully good in the 40s and 50s, and we'll continue talking about them when we return here. Golly shucks to be on the bricks. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. 
and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. This is Beyond the Bricks, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I believe episode number 19, if my math is correct, I could be wrong in that. 18, 19, somewhere in there. My name is Jake Query. Mike Thompson joins as well. Most importantly, it is Wednesday of race week in Indianapolis, and this is Beyond the Bricks. Tonight we are featuring some of those names and hearing from some of the legends of the 40s and the 50s. As a matter of fact, 1947 was the final race for Cliff Bergier, but he raced in 16 of them, and you want to talk about somebody that another one of those drivers, Mike, that when you look at the statistics, basically every area but actual wins, you're going to find Cliff Brazier's name. Yeah, I mean, Cliff Brazier did a lot of things. I mean, he started on the pole. Uh, he's the oldest pole winner ever at uh, the age of 49. And so he was still very, very competitive late in his career. Unfortunately, he didn't get to have the, the results on a number of those finishes that uh, he would have liked, obviously. But, I mean, he had a, you know, he had a third and a fourth here and there. But uh, one of the biggest names, I mean, he, he drove in the 500 from, you know, 1927 until 1947. But what's also cool about him, he was a Hollywood stunt driver. I mean, he did, he did a lot of interesting things, uh, you know, that worked auto racing as well. You know, Cliff Brazier was one of those, I remember a few years ago, our friend Donald Davidson, as the statistics started piling up for other drivers of the modern era moving up the all-time lap leaders list, uh, Donald was one of the – he would always mention Cliff Brazier and, w- and which drivers would pass Cliff Brazier, who did lead a lot of laps over the course of the race. And also when you talk about the fact that anybody that ran, of course, pre-war and post-war, that alone is – certainly a unique perspective we're going to hear from cliff brazier i believe this is mike from his post racing career correct this is from 1951 at the borg warner party now sid for mutual did a bunch of these interviews at the borg warner party and it was it was kind of what they call the car i know you're familiar with this jake the terminology the car wash where oh, yeah. you're 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 going through and and all these different people are kind of brought to you well i think sid had a you know he had kind of a fixed setup and they would just kind of bring people to him and live on mutual uh at the board order party you know sid would interview people really quickly and so some of these interviews we've heard during this month have been from the 1951 board warner party and that's where this is from the bullpen i think is as we would call it right that's what we call it that's today right. the bullpen running them through the bullpen all right here is clippers here from 1951 now, here's a man who is uh, described best as Mr. Racing himself, since he has more miles on that two-and-a-half-mile oval than any other driver in the business. Thank you, Sid. Mr. Cliff Berger. Nice to be here. This is a very wonderful party given by Borg Warner. And, you know, I'm looking forward to that big day tomorrow. It's going to be a terrific race. A lot of fast cars, a lot of good drivers. Qualifying speeds were higher than ever before. The track is faster than ever before, and it's really going to be a sight to see. Well, Cliff has a real authority on this 500-mile race. I wonder if you'd tell us what we can look for tomorrow. Of course, we're interested in the rookie drivers, and also perhaps there's some speculation about Maury Rose trying to make it four in a row. And lots, or not four in a row, but four wins. And lots of folks are wondering if Johnny Parsons can come back for two in a row. 
Lots of various little angles to look out for. What is going to uh, capture your interest the most tomorrow, Cliff? Well, of course, I'm going to be mainly interested in seeing the boys get through the first turn without any accidents because you know how they bunch up in that first turn. And when they do that, I'm going to heave a big sigh of relief. But I believe that the average for the race will be quite high this year. Even though we have a number of rookie drivers, they've had a lot of practice laps. And I don't think we'll have any accidents. And I believe that the average is going to be 126 miles an hour for the 500. Well, we just heard someone else here say about 124 plus, so I guess everybody has a chance to speculate tonight. Biff, we'll watch and see who's right. Right on. Nice to be here, Sid. Good to have you. I know you'll be very close because with your experience, you certainly should hit it very close to hitting the nail on the head. They were close because the average speed was 126.244. Three hours, 30, or three hours and 57 minutes, I should say, in the race that they were discussing. By the way, with Cliff Brazier, I should point out, Mike, that it actually was laps turned in which Donald was always so impressed. 2,308, I believe, he turned in his racing career at Indianapolis. Yeah, Cliff Brazier, the one thing I want to point out to people is uh, a lot of times you see that he's billed that he was born in Toledo, Ohio, which is important to me, of course, because I actually was born in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, Cliff Brazier was not born in Toledo, Ohio. He was born in New York. Uh, for, I don't know why exactly he gets billed on so, several websites as he was billed from being from Toledo, Ohio. He was not. I mean, he did live in Toledo at one point because he worked for Champion Spark Plug, and Champion was based in Toledo. But Cliff Brazier was not born in Toledo. You'd have claimed him if he won, though, wouldn't you, Mike? Oh, I'd have claimed him if he was born there. <laughs> I'm kidding, but he of wasn't. course. Uh, no, and a fabulous driver over the course of his career. Another fabulous driver, when we're talking about the early 50s, of course, few drivers were more dominant than Bill Vukovic, who won back-to-back years, as we know, obviously well-documented in dominating fashion in 1953 and 1954. A lot of people perhaps forget the fact that he also was dominant leading 150 laps in 1952. But it was after the race in 1953. Mike, this is cool audio that I think you found because this is, again, kind of a post-race celebration, right, and a recap that was done in which Bill Vukovic spoke, correct? Yeah, and actually I found this this weekend. Um, I came back after qualifying on Sunday because I wasn't feeling a little bit under the weather, so I didn't get to do the post-qualifying wrap-up show Sunday. So I was starting to look for some audio for this week's shows, and I stumbled across this in the in the uh, collection I've got here, and it's from the uh, CBS network actually, and it's, it was called the Indianapolis Story. They called that's what they build it, and it was actually a full post-race show, kind of like what we did on 107.5. You know, it's a it's a full post-race show with guests and panelists and things like that. But what I really like about this is they briefly have Bill Vukovic on there talking about his victory but it's it's him talking to his children actually it really shows a different side of bill vukovic a much more human side than we i think any has ever been really portrayed so i really like this clip a lot because it shows a, a really kind of you know bill vukovic the father and not bill vukovic the racer here he is the winner ladies and gentlemen billy vukovic well bill congratulations are unnecessary and futile at this point to a real iron man so take over this mic we're all mighty proud of you. To me, you're the Rocky Marciano of our business, and say hello to those kids back at Fresno, will you? Hello, Marlene and Billy. 
Well, Daddy finally won the race, and uh, I guess I'll be home in about a week or so. And, uh, well, I guess that's about all there is. We're all mighty proud of you, Bill. Thank you, Tom. You made a lot of money today. Yeah, I guess you made a few bucks. Just let me say, he is still the same sweet Billy Vukovic as when he lost the big race in 1952 in the last 20 miles, as he is today, the greatest winner, I think, of any Indianapolis race, Billy Vukovic. That amount of money, by the way, $89,497 in 1953. Well, one of them had to have been sitting there and having his eyes pop out a little bit over that amount of money in 1953 was Elbert, better known as Babe Stapp, who began racing in Indianapolis in 1927. He ran up until the 1940 race and also in those old days, of course, would uh, occasionally race and have a relief driver. But uh, he also, if I'm not mistaken, Mike, Babe Stapp was also at that same post-race celebration and dinner in 1953, correct? Well, it was, yeah, it was not a post-race uh, dinner. It was, a you know, this post-race show. show yeah, and sorry. so it was, uh, you know, like a you know show from Gasoline Alley that they did on CBS, which was really cool. And again, like what I loved about that Vukovic clip is that's Bill Vukovic kind of in a nutshell, right? He's not going to say anything. He didn't, doesn't have a lot of things to say. You know, happy to win. I guess I won. Um, and, you know, happy to say hi to, to Marlene and Billy Jr., but uh, not going to say a whole lot, right? Um, that's Bill Vukovic. In a that nutshell. famous but, photo yeah, of Bill staff. Vukovic, Mike, the famous photo of Bill Vukovic exhausted after one of the races. I think it was 54, not 53. I could be wrong. Um, which which race was it, the famous photo where he was totally Yeah, that's overcome. 54. Yeah, that's a what he sounded like in that clip, 53. though. In that clip, he sounds like what he looks like in the 54 race. He just sounded completely exhausted, right? Yeah, exactly. No, that's right. No, that's 100% right. I, but yeah, you're right. A lot of people believe that photo is from 53, and it actually wasn't. It was taken the next year in 54. But but Babe Stapp was cool because, you know, Babe Stapp had retired, um, and, you know, his last race had been in 1940. But uh, he was, you know, a lot involved with racing after that and, and was around. And so he got to be part of this panel for the Indianapolis story and talk about how great he thought Bill Vukovic is. And what's neat about this clip, Jake, you'll like this. He makes a prediction for the next year as well. Make sure you catch that. All right, here's Babe Stapp with the 1953 race analysis for CBS. And here now is a man who has driven 14 times in this great race and in this hottest of all days that we saw today at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I know that Babe Stapp, his memory must go way back. He's, he's driven, as I mentioned, 14 times. And I think Babe was in the last race that the pole car won. And actually, when Vukovic won today, it was only the fifth time in 37 long years that the car on the pole won the race. Well, Babe, reminisce for us, will you? Well, that's correct, Tom. This is the fifth time since the race started in 1911. Vukovic was the fifth man. The last time was Floyd Roberts in 1938. Floyd went from the pole to the victory lane in since then it's been no other car until bill today babe have you ever seen a hotter day at the indianapolis motor speedway on memorial day tom this is the hottest day for any 500 i've ever seen or been in and i'll say this that this is the greatest array of hot drivers too but it really took its toll there were really iron men out there and of course Vuki was the toughest of them all he went from start to finish without relief well, Babe, without a doubt, they're getting faster, they're going farther. Of course, this temperature today, 
was something, a real test of men and machine. And when you think back in all the years that you drove here, uh, I don't think there's ever been more relief driving than we saw uh, earlier this afternoon. I believe that's right, Tom. There's an awful lot of changing between the drivers out there. And, of course, the heat took its toll on the cars, too, because the oil thinned out and they ran out of oil. And a lot of oil was on the track. It was very slick and it was very, very hard on rubber. What do you think was the outstanding factor outside of the wheat, the, the heat in Vuki's win, uh, babe? The outstanding factor? Mm-hmm. Well... I'll tell you mine after you give me yours. Of course, now, Vuki and the uh, fuel injection special, I think, has a little better ventilation and definitely a little better manifolding for the exhaust to get out than the rest of the cars. That is a little different from these last 500 of the Curtis Craft. Next year, there's a lot of talk about using straight gasoline, and I think you, you hit on the right deal there because they did have a lot of fumes from the straight alky they were using uh, earlier this afternoon and heat, right? In the cockpit. But also, so I'll go along with you, but here's my impression of why Vuki uh, won today, despite his excellent condition and his speed. The wonderful performance of his pit crew. Yes, that's very definitely a big part of it, too. They changed four tires in 48 seconds, as I recall, or 54 seconds. Think of that, babe. Four, four tires. It's a combination, and Tom, if uh, Vuki drives that same car next year, I don't think anybody beat him either. When we come back, one of the more popular drivers of the 50s, who unfortunately lost his life in 1958. But we'll hear from him on Beyond the Bricks. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Jake Query, Mike Thompson, Sam Fritz, Eddie Garrison. Beyond the Bricks here, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. Mike, I believe Jimmy Reese started six Indianapolis 500s in the 50s. Unfortunately, he was fatally injured in 1958 in Trenton. That was sadly not uncommon in those days. But tell me what we're about to hear from Jimmy Reese. Uh, this is really cool. It's another one of those Daryl Weibel interviews. And what I like about it is I'd never heard Jimmy Reese's voice until this. So I was I was just excited to be able to hear, you know, another great driver of that era that, uh, you know, sadly right now lost to history. But that's what this show's for is to to bring those guys back to, uh, you know, to the people. Let's hear from Jimmy Reese. Around us is a strip of brick and asphalt. Two and one and a half miles of challenge men cannot resist. Some of these men are with us here. And we want you to meet them and know them better. Here, for example, is Jimmy Reese, who is worried at the present time. Why are you worried, Jim? Well, this is uh, Thursday, and my race car isn't here yet. And they're supposed to fly down from California tomorrow, so I'll probably get to run Saturday or Sunday. However, I don't believe I'll get to qualify then. I'll have to wait till the next weekend of qualifying. How long does it take to familiarize yourself with a new machine like that? Well, uh, it just depends on how the car works. If they have it set up pretty good, you ought to be able to get running in a couple days or three days, maybe, and then I'll have to get myself warmed up and going this fast. Jim, does it make a lot of difference to 
to individual drivers is the way that the, that the car is set up. In other words, what is right for one fellow, would it necessarily be right for you? That's right. Uh, I don't know of two drivers that drive exactly the same. Uh, you can get a car running pretty good, uh, say over 140, and another driver will get in it, and he might go faster and might go slower, and what a lot of things change around to his own liking. It's almost like wearing a pair of shoes, then, isn't it? That's right. Can you remember the first race you ever drove in? Yes, I uh, started driving race cars in 1948. I think it was about January. Uh, out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I drove a midget, and I uh, made the consolation. I think I had the slowest uh, time driving car there, and all the cars spun out, but the guy that won it, and so I got second. Well, you were a lucky boy then, right to start with. Uh, Jim, I don't suppose uh, I'd be out of line in asking you a biggest thrill in racing. Is there any special thing that's happened to you that's been a bigger thrill than anything else? Well, I guess the, the most thrilling thing ever happened to me is the first year I ran here in 1952, in my rookie year. I finished seventh and was very happy, and it really it was a real thrill. Oh boy, you certainly did a terrific job too. How does it feel, incidentally, to sit in that field of 33 cars in that first turn? Well, uh, you take it pretty easy, so you won't get there's a, a, a vacuum with all these cars running that fast and that close together in the first turn. So you kind of take her easy the first lap or two until you get situated and know exactly what's going on. What was your first reaction when you saw this big racetrack for the first time? I came here in 1950 uh, as a spectator, and uh, that was the year Johnny Parsons won it when it rained. And I thought they went pretty fast, and then after I took my first ride around here, I knew they went fast. You knew it, and how? How much more do you think they can squeeze out of these often houses, by the way? Well, I don't know. Every year they go a little faster. The uh, Firestone tire and rubber develops a better tire, and uh, the chassis are getting a little better, and they've got the track smoother now than it ever has been. So uh, I don't want to say there's any limit. Uh, surely there is one, but they haven't found it yet. I might mention that Jimmy Reese is one of the very few men to come along high in national point standings and not get points at the 500. He did this in, was it 1954, Jim? That's right. In 54, I finished 17th here at the Speedway, which does not give any points, and... Uh, I went out on the, around the dirt tracks and made all the races and finished fairly good in all of them, and I ended up in a tie for fourth spot with uh, Billy Vukovic. Well, you were certainly in there all the way. You were second and third and second and third all season long. Is there any man you'd like to give credit to more than any other, perhaps, as helping you with the fine points of racing? Well, there's so many people have helped me. I couldn't name them all, but the one that really stands out in my memory is uh, John Zink, who owns the car that, that uh, won the race last year. He was the fellow that brought me up here in my first year in 52 and gave me the test, which is a hard thing to get. And I guess he, more than anyone else, has helped me along to where I am now. Jimmy, who owns the car that you're going to drive? It's owned by Joseph Masaya Jr. of Los Angeles. He, he, uh, they call it the Masaya Hotel Special. The fellow uh, owns a whole lot of hotels through the United States and over in Hawaii. And the car is uh, entered by Hart Fullerton. He's a DeSoto Plymouth dealer in, in Santa Monica, and he's going to take care of the car, whereas uh, Masaya owns it. Jimmy, you've taken a ride in the Streamliner, Chapman Road Streamliner number 47. Uh, how many laps did you take of the car? I took about seven laps and it got up to about 134 miles an hour. That car feels completely different than anything I'd ever driven. And they had the tanks on the side, which they have now taken those off and put the put the fuel tank back in the trunk, as I call it. So I haven't taken it out since they changed it, but the uh, thing really runs good if you get used to it. Jim, you say it's different. How different is it? In what way? Well, I never drove a car that had fenders over the wheels. I've always been able to see the front wheels in any race car other than a stock car that I've driven. And you can't see the front wheels, and the thing looks pretty wide sitting there in the driver's seat. And when you go on a turn, it kind of leans over, but maybe they've changed that since they took the side tanks off. Another thing, too, they tell me that when you're in the main stretch, of course, where you have to make a lot of fast climb, 
that when you take your foot off, nothing happens. You just keep going. Well, they have that car so streamlined, and when you back off the throttle, it just feels like you keep right on going. That uh, gives you a little extra thrill. It certainly must. Jimmy Reese, how much speed will it take to make this starting lineup? I don't know. I've been watching these guys every day. I've got my watches on most all the fellows, and it looks like it's going to take about 140 to make the race. Well, your estimate is a little lower than some others, but then there were some railbirds who were fooled last year and didn't take quite the speed that they thought. With ideal racing conditions now, say the weather is exactly right, how fast would you say a man could possibly go around this track if everything is right? Well, I don't know that Nova yesterday ran 146.6, and he said he wasn't trying too hard. Uh, a little car really scoots down the straightaway, so I figure you can run around here 150 someday. I don't know when. Someday someone will tour it in a minute flat, and it might be you. You can never tell. Thank you very much. Jimmy Reese. Jimmy Reese had three top 10 finishes, a native of Oklahoma City. He finished 7th in 52, 9th in 56, and 6th in 58. Tomorrow we will take a look at some of the unsung heroes of the Indianapolis 500, a peek behind the curtain as we continue tomorrow night's coverage of Beyond the Bricks. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time.